and welcome to Focal Point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. I'm Harriet, your host, and the, I have the usual members of the IMV clinical team joining me today. So a big hello to Laura. Hello, everyone. And we have Sam. Hi, everybody. And Amy. Hi, everyone. As always, we're going to be chatting about a topic related to the field of diagnostic imaging, and this month we'll be catching up on BSABA. So whether you got the opportunity to attend this year's event in Manchester or decided to give it a miss, it was great to see the variety of lectures on offer, especially in diagnostic imaging. So to start us off, Sam, what were your thoughts on this year's lectures? Thanks, Harriet. Yeah, it was interesting. It's great to be able to go back to conference, although I have to admit I um, this time I did it virtually as well, which other people might have done or felt they, they need to do or they, they kind of, um, they, they suppose it makes it a bit more accessible and things. So I have to say the virtual platform worked pretty well for me. There was the odd technical hitch, as always happens um, with all these things. But generally, it worked, um, it worked very well, and it was actually quite good. Uh, value as well, given that you got access to all the lectures on demand and for a good period of time as well. So I thought that was a good way of kind of doing it a bit different, being able to do it from the comfort of your home with a cup of tea and um, to slight degree in your own time as well. Occasionally with some of the more interactive things, I suppose when you came to do them afterwards, they, they maybe lost a little bit of the interactivity, understandably, but otherwise it was good to kind of do it that way and it worked pretty well. Um, so there's a number, there's a number of diagnostic imaging lectures they all tended to be on the first day so there was sort of a sort of stream of them there's also a couple on demand as well to catch up on and um, a lot of it focusing the diagnostic imaging wise there's a lot about ct and then more focusing on thoracic and um, radiology um, and radiography as well so that's the kind of topics they seem to pick up on as well the first one i saw that was quite interesting was a discussion about um, the use of ct in first opinion practice and I suppose this was quite interesting just as a, uh, as a kind of discussion on CT, because, I mean, we, we all sort of know and we've all seen and we've talked about as well, CT has sort of, it, it's kind of been on the rise. More and more people are getting it, more and more practices are using it. You hear about more and more people thinking about getting it. And I suppose this um, this lecture was more of a kind of discussion slash debate on on kind of where on that sort of very topic is sort of why why people would want it kind of where the use of it comes as well and there's a lot of the kind of things that people would have considered or we've talked about before when it comes to CT and kind of integrating it into first opinion practice is um is just having the space the kind of costs for it having the staff um dedicated to run it and therefore the training for the staff and um, they were sort of highlighting it was really important to have some people who are very engaged and dedicated to, to running the machine in order to make it um, as sort of useful and efficient as possible, and um, which is a big thing part of it as well. And, um, and then a lot of the discussion as well, which is something I've brought up or mentioned before, is just part of CT is, is being able to have the services to kind of run on the back of it. So we've talked about it, I mean, it's all, it's all very well being able to diagnose these issues, but a big part is having the sort of surgery or neurology team um, there to to sort of be able to actually treat the problems that you diagnose because that's part of actually making the investment in a CT machine um, cost effective. Um, so yeah, it was just an interesting discussion around the topic. So I don't know what um, if you guys have any thoughts 
on CT and first opinion practice or any sort of particular consideration I've not kind of mentioned there that you might um, that you maybe kind of think about or would be good for people to know. One thought that stuck with me regarding the use of CT in general practice and this was mentioned in the lecture is the use of whole body CTs rather than more specific studies and the implications of this. As discussed in a previous podcast with Amanda Walsh, the dose of radiation patients receive with whole body scans is phenomenal, uh, which is why being thorough with a clinical examination is so important to really narrow down the specific regions requiring a CT scan. To add, the time needed to interpret whole body CT, especially if they're being sent externally, is no small task. Yeah, I think that was something that was brought up in that that very talk was this this issue around whole body scans, and I think it was one of the things that somebody highlighted is their frustration with um, CTs and first opinion practices when people did whole body scans, and um, that wasn't to say that they don't have. An application. I think they were talking about um, things like, oh, if you've got a pyrexia of unknown origin, you might have to do an entire kind of body scan as a kind of clinical example of where you're looking for certain things. But I, I think completely that is that by when you do those sort of whole body scans, you're 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 losing sort of the detail that you would get from actually a more focused examination throughout it. And just as you said, I think that was something they brought up multiple times was just the time it takes to interpret. It. I think they were sort of saying that if somebody sends a whole body study, then it actually takes them several hours to go through that. So if somebody sends a whole body scan to um, a telemedicine service, the poor kind of radiologist at the other end has got three hours of assessing just those images to try and find whatever it is. And that that's not including then if you've then made the mistake with some kind of positioning or there's some kind of technical fault in the way the study has been run. So I think definitely you've got to you've got to feel for them and you've got to maybe think about the kind of utility of that when you when you go down that road. It's also the cost that's incurred as a result of that, because for every time you do a much wider scan rather than something focused, there's several different regions that will have to be charged separately. So the cost to the client goes up hugely um, in addition to the time that it takes. This, this is considering that. In a lot of general practice, we there isn't a radiographer, um, sorry, radiologist present who can perform the interpretations. So they need to be sent off to an ex- external um, radiology uh, providers, and the cost is becomes quite astronomical from that. I actually um, scribbled down the cost to the practice in electricity per scan as well, uh, which I found really interesting. So it's a question that we've asked before. Um, and it's 30 to 40 pounds per scan in electricity alone. So if you've got a very busy CT scanner, that's quite a quite a big um, additional cost to your practice. And if you're doing whole bodies all the time, that's going to add up. Wow. I, d- I didn't. I had no idea it was that expensive. That's mad. OK. Um, yeah, definitely something to consider as well. I think what was really interesting as well, well, when you kind of when they're talking about CT and first opinion too, was that they were really kind of keen to to sort of and and right to kind of highlight the fact that um, there's still a strong role for for kind of ultrasound and other imaging modalities despite practices owning CT. So a good example of that was that often 
even with CT, they would still use ultrasound to examine certain organs and especially for the purposes of um, sampling areas, because obviously when you've got these cases, it's very common. The final diagnosis for a lot of things might rely on cytology or histopathology, and then almost you were coming back to kind of ultrasound again. So it's still uh, still something that they, they were very keen to highlight throughout these um, these discussions was the fact that you often do end up coming, coming back to using ultrasound and there's still a very strong role for it in, in many areas of kind of medicine as well. I definitely have to agree with that. Ultrasound will always have its place and CT doesn't replace ultrasound at all. The speakers even mentioned in the lecture how ultrasound was far superior for locating foreign bodies, especially in the feet compared to CT. Um, the other thing that I wrote down because I was having a bit of a geeky moment was um, the doses of radiation that are received during a CT scan. So um, I found it really interesting that a thoracic radiograph is going to give you 0.02 millisieverts of radiation. A thoracic CT will give you five and an abdomen will give you 10. So if you're doing a whole body, that is a really huge amount of radiation you're exposing patients to. So I think with um, lots of first opinion practices looking to get CT, which is great and really exciting and um, a, a kind of a dawn of a new era almost, we do have to be mindful, uh, I suppose, more so with our patients of how much radiation we're actually giving them. That also um, comes back sort of slightly full circle to the point I was making at the start about having um, staff dedicated to the service of it as well, like just beyond um, the kind of use of maybe telemedicine for, for reporting and image evaluation, having people in the practice who are really engaged, um, who know how to, to run it in position and make the studies um, work. Because for that very very point alone, not negating some of the others we've, we've mentioned, um, you can imagine that if, if you run a scan and you've got a problem and then you have to run it again, it, it, that obviously becomes costly, time consuming, and then you've got the, the issues of the, the radiation, the health and safety as well. So I think a, a really important part of it is coming back to having people that know how the system works, having the proper protocols set up and um, having that training there in place to, to, to be able to make the use of it efficiently. Yeah, totally agree. Um, the radiologists were saying that they, they get the best images sent to them for interpretation by practices that have that set up. So that's something that that practices that are getting CT really need to look at and that's the best way to get good images for sure. It just adds to maintain the consistency in acquiring the images. If the same members of staff are operating the CT machine all the time, then they're going to consistently get better quality images compared to staff who aren't frequently involved. Um, the only worry there is when the regular staff aren't available, this is why it's so, so important for most of the staff in a practice to be competent at operating the CT machine so that when you know, the super users aren't available, other people can step in and still get good quality images. Yeah, so continuing the sort of CT theme, one of the other um, uh, lectures I attended um, kind of live uh, virtually was also just a, a discussion about kind of elbow CT that was sort of divided between um, a kind of orthopedic specialist and again an, an imager. And it, it was interesting them just discussing the, um, the kind of the technique for elbow CT and just the use of sort of thin um, slice thicknesses and the, the pitch and the field of view in order to get 
get as much detail as possible. But um, one of the kind of really interesting bits I found about it was more about the discussion in and around it, because we all know the elbow is a difficult joint image with um, with traditional radiography because of the superimposition of all those structures there as well. So there was a discussion about going, the, the virtues and merits of going straight to CT for elbow lamenesses as well, which they, they did discuss the fact that with, with flexed kind of lateral views, it was possible to see kind of um, ununited ankyneal processes. So it still didn't mean that there was a total call to completely avoid doing radiography, but it's definitely a consideration where cost comes into it as well. So it was interesting to hear that part of it that sort of discussion of just about the utility of it in clinical cases. I really enjoyed the question about whether you go straight for CT if you've got um, suspected elbow dysplasia rather than doing radiographs because from my experience of practice you're lucky to get a diagnosis that you're fairly comfortable with on your um, on your elbow x-rays, particularly because the craniocaudal view is so difficult to get. And medial coronoid process disease can be so difficult and uh, to see. And certainly um, OCD lesions can be very difficult to see as well. So you'll take an x-ray, you'll look at it, you'll send it to a, a specialist who will say, recommend CT. So the question was, do we just skip CT? Um, <clears throat> sorry. And uh, the, the answer was, you can. But what's really important is to make sure that your clinical exam is really, really good. So I found that quite interesting because it's bringing the new technology and the new approach in, i.e. go straight for CT, but also bringing us back to real basics. So right at the beginning, making sure your clinical exam is very thorough and gave us some pointers on on how to kind of localize pain and, and inflammation on your clinical exam to that region of the elbow. They likened it to a sort of thorough neurological exam, which I thought was really great um, as a useful tool, kind of blending the, the new with the old to bring us back to basics. Yeah, no, I think I think it's really interesting. Kind of, it, it's that sort of ever evolving thing about veterinary medicine, isn't it? Is that something new comes along, and and it's sort of how we use it and integrate it, especially doing it in a kind of effective and and, sen and sensible way as well. But it was really interesting, sort of seeing these different approaches in the way that CT potentially changes things. One of the things coming with the elbow CT part as well that I found really interesting in the discussion was the discussion around the um, elbow scoring scheme and the fact that that still utilizes um, traditional kind of radiographs for scoring using in the BBA Kennel Club scheme. And the part of the, the interesting discussion there was the discussion about whether CT would be a better alternative. Now, obviously, there's issues with access and, and cost to that. But one of the interesting parts was the, the sort of discussion really sort of seemed to say, well, actually, CT probably would be a much more effective way of kind of scoring and gaining information from those um, those patients. And that almost in in a way not dissimilar to kind of Chiari-like malformation in where MRI is used in King Charles Cavaliers, um, the um, the CT might be a kind of way forward for the future in order to more effectively score um, uh, dogs kind of pre-breeding to, to have a bigger effect on elbow dysplasia as well. So I, I found that really interesting. Yeah, some of the... Um 
some of the the images that they had of young dogs, uh, young Labradors, you know, nine months old, one year old, 18 months old, the elbows were awful um, on CT. And I kind of, I did wonder to myself what they might have looked like on radiographs, but also um, just kind of wondering to myself whether there'd been any screening of those dogs' parents and, and how sensitive um, x-ray is and all that kind of stuff. So um, if it, if we can avoid situations where these young Labradors have got and other other breeds have got um, life limiting um, dysplasia and, and secondary degenerative changes, even when they're only sort of a year old. I think that would be fab. It's really interesting, actually, seeing this sort of transformation of CT because it's historically been a sort of secondary or advanced imaging modality, whereby you know if, if radiography and ultrasonography doesn't give you an answer, then that then you consider do I need to go for CT or MRI to get more information it's kind of coming down to the same level of um, almost like a primary imaging modality now, isn't it? In that you know, in some circumstances, you may think actually it's best to go direct to CT rather than doing radiography and ultrasound because, um, you know, whereas a lot of conditions you would still potentially want to do radiography and ultrasound first because they are potentially cheaper, much more accessible, and if required, it can go for CT. Um, in, a, in a lot of instances, actually, you know, if there's no, if you know you're going to need CT in the end, why do you radiography and ultrasound go straight for CT? You actually save that cost. Um, but like like you were saying, Sam, it, it does come down to, um, you know, being very specific or, sorry, Amy, with your, your clinical examination and knowing, you know, in this instance, yes, it's appropriate to go for CT versus in other instances, you might say, actually, it is appropriate to go for um, radiography or ultrasound first. So it's it's quite interesting seeing how it's sort of evolving over time and coming coming much more down to a level of um, primary imaging modality, really. I did wonder uh, nowadays how much tuition the vet students are getting in CT, seeing as CT is really, as you say, Laura, looking to become a primary imaging modality. Certainly, I didn't have a lot of um, tuition in it in interpreting CTs. So um, I think it's going to be something that there might be a bit of a knowledge gap with um, vets coming out, potentially, um, as we see a little bit with ultrasound as well, um, and how that experience is going to be gained, um, especially if they're, they're joining big practices that have got a, a CT as standard and they might be... Um, doing sort of nighttime or out of hours stuff and, and CT something and then wonder a little bit about um, interpretation. I completely agree with you. As we see quite commonly that there is a, a lack of ultrasound um, knowledge from new grads coming out of university. You know, I wasn't given much at university and with CT coming behind ultrasound, I think there is going to be a real time lag between when students are being, you know, taught CT to a level where they, when they graduate, They've got the knowledge to use it on first day skills. So, yeah, again, we've talked a lot about CT, uh, but I, there was still a lot to BSAV about the other imaging modalities that we mentioned is still a big place for sort of ultrasound in many cases as well. Another part um, that a lot of lectures focused on this time was um, thoracic kind of radiology. And um, there was a lot of kind of quite interesting um, case-based discussion on that. So I, I found it really interesting um, just seeing some of the cases, um, some things they'd seen before, some things they'd not seen. It was interesting what watching some of the, the cases as well. I think that the, the big thing for, for me, which always seems very obvious, but it's harder to do in practice than you think, is, is that kind of 
being disciplined and doing a nice systematic assessment of your x-rays and, and doing that rather than get focusing on sometimes the obvious or, or the kind of more major anatomy. Because even looking at some of the cases they give, it, it sometimes just uh, highlights when, when they point at something right at the periphery of the lung that you've just not noticed. And um, you think, ah, that, that's why you're meant to be uh, systematic about this rather than kind of staring around the kind of pilar region of the heart or something of the thorax as well. Um, so it was really interesting to see those um, cases as well. And they went through through a lot of different ones. Um, a, a lot of parts of it seemed interesting. So I don't, I don't know about the rest of you guys. Was there any particular cases, any part of that you thought was um, was particularly interesting, particularly useful? Uh, yeah, I have to say when I was in practice, I've never seen a lung lobe torsion but it's always something that gets mentioned as a possible differential and I can quite comfortably say after those two sessions um, I could spot one now uh, because um, I quite like thoracic radiography because there's so many different things to look at and I really like a systematic appraisal of a situation there are so many structures in the thorax to look at but I'd never seen a vesicular pattern in a lung lobe before that you get with the with the sort of um, trapping of air when something's been twisted um, and I really liked the way that the presenters broke down the, the systematic approach of, of reminding people how to do lung patterns and make it more simple for people and looking to see the path of the bronchus if it's been sort of twisted or distorted at all and um yeah so I could I could definitely comfortably spot a lung lobe torsion now that's that's the that's one thing I took away which I, I found really interesting to see really good radiographs as well it was really interesting going through the different pathologies case by case. What was also interesting was seeing the variation in normal findings for different breeds of dog. One that really stuck in my mind was the mediastinal fat, which is commonly seen in brachycephalic breeds, which could be so easily mistaken for pathology if you didn't realise it was actually normal. I really appreciated them um, recapping all of the things that you should really assess when you go through a thoracic radiograph. So you've obviously got the heart, you've got the lungs, you've got the vessels, you've got the pleural space, you've got the trachea, you've got the esophagus, you know, gastrointestinal structures there as well, the diaphragm, all of that, the ribs, so much to look at. So actually, something that I found in practice was that when you take an x-ray and the team are sort of, you know, looking at the x-ray with you and they're sort of wanting to get on and, and, and get done, they'll, they'll come to you and they'll say within about 10 seconds, so what's going on? And I feel like you actually need a good little while to kind of sit down and really look at an x-ray for quite a decent period of time to do a good job of interpreting it. Um, and I appreciated the way that they, they broke down to um, to look at um, the opacities, whether we've got sort of an increased opacity or a decreased opacity um, of the lung or other areas in the thorax. And then to kind of break it down into whether you've got clues with an increased or decreased lung lobe volume categorize a distribution then name the lung pattern then you've narrowed down your differentials absolutely massively um, and I uh, second what you said Harriet the um the differentiation the the different versions of normal for um a fat brachycephalic or even a moderately over overweight brachycephalic you're going to have a lot of mediastinal fat which displaces structures and mimics a mass super interesting yeah, it's really interesting. You get those sort of little nuggets of information you get as well. Some of the things I found quite interesting from a kind of um, technical point of view with, with the sort of modalities was when, again, when they're talking about assessing the ribs, 
was using the um, black-white invert feature that a lot of um, radiography um, uh, displaying programs for, for digital radiography actually can, can use, and we often forget about is there, where it flips it to so anything that's white, i.e. bone, becomes black, and anything that's, that's white um, becomes, uh, anything that's black becomes white. That's what I'm trying to say. So it basically allows the ribs to become kind of highlighted and stand out as black on a white field, um, which is quite useful for um, actually looking for rib fractures, which is quite interesting because you often forget these little things are there and sometimes you wonder about the utility of them as well. So it's interesting to remember those. Another one they mentioned as well, which again, I, I apologize for going back to CT stuff, um, was they talked about as well using a kind of minimal intensity signaling mode, whereby you actually, the CT highlights the lowest attenuating tissue, which I thought was very cool, which which is actually then means that it allows to highlight the um, airways. Um, so the opacity of the airways is highlighted to actually show the airway structure very obviously in the um, in the scan as well. So it's quite interesting that you have these little technical things that you can start to pick up and bring in, which I thought was um, was quite interesting. Yeah, going back to the the case of the the ribs and looking for a rib fracture, there was the dog case which had quite severe chronic sort of um, emphysema and um, it had a rib fracture which was presumably secondary to coughing and the rib fracture I didn't spot it on my first view of the film and then when when they come to highlight it you're like oh yeah definitely um, but you wouldn't have seen it and I think inverting the image would have helped definitely um, to spot it because it was quite subtle but from a personal experience of having my ribs broken by a cow um astonishingly painful so there would have been a huge degree of discomfort for that dog which we we wouldn't necessarily have even seen on the x-ray without kind of having a really decent look but also i think it's fair to say trying trying to evaluate um an image on uh, that's uh, via a powerpoint on a uh, on a screen whether it's whether you're in person looking at um at the, the projector screen or your own screen I think I think you know you're at a little bit of a disadvantage, so I think we should definitely highlight that as well. It's definitely harder to try and evaluate images um, when they're being presented to you. Something I really appreciated as well was the list of differentials given to us by the presenters, and um, the usually more often than not the huge spread of responses, which just made you feel a lot better as a general practitioner, just knowing that um, you're never going to be sort of on the money all the time and we all have different ideas about stuff we've all got different levels of experience and it made the whole situation almost a lot more approachable and normalized how difficult thoracic radiological interpretation is which just makes you feel a bit more kind of grounded and and one with your colleagues in the profession it's like also whenever you read these sort of papers and if they've included an inter-observer agreement uh, between experts or um, specialists when you see it's not 100% agreement between the specialists, then it also makes you realise like, okay, <laughs> you know, it, it, a lot of this is down to subjectivity, isn't it? And just that diagnostic imaging is, is hard. Like it, it is, everybody sees it a little bit differently. And it's it, as Amy said, and as you've said, Laura, it's quite comforting actually when you look at an x-ray and you don't get it 100% right the first time. But then also knowing that it is such a difficult subject and that everyone else in the, in the field also, you know, doesn't get it 100% right every time makes you think that, OK, you know, I'm, I'm better than I thought. 
Yeah, it's also a, a lot of these things, it's quite artificial because it's completely out of context. Like if you'd had a case, you'd have done the clinical exam, you'd have had a history, you'd have had a clinical suspicion, and you'd also probably be performing potentially multiple diagnostic tests on it as well. So sometimes it's difficult in isolation, but there's still a great way of just highlighting some of these interesting, um, interesting examples and um, showing a sort of enforcing the, the, the benefits of that sort of systematic approach as well. And um, something I wanted to mention um, quite quickly, just we're coming back with the, the radiography, because we talked a lot about radiography and CT, but just to, to, to sort of um, champion in the ultrasound part again as well is that another big thing we brought up even with thoracic and um, radiography was again that there's um, real utility for ultrasound in it as well beyond obviously the point of care ultrasound exams as well it was very useful for assessing um, hernias mediastinal masses mediastinal cyst assessing for the kind of cardio of the stomach and the area around the diaphragm as well so there's lots of these situations where ultrasound can be very useful and then even again coming back to lung lobe torsions and um, there's there's ultrasonographic signs that you can look for and um, that help to highlight those too so it's all um it's all there's good being able to use that multi-modality approach just coming back to the use of ultrasound and the first lecture we discussed there was a mention of using ct for trauma patients and the surgeon on the pan panel actually said no you shouldn't be using ct for trauma patients as they usually present unstable they can't be safely anesthetized and many of them are in some form of shock which could then possibly have reduced renal perfusion and therefore we can't be giving them contrast therefore ultrasound really is your first line modality with trauma patients yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's definitely known that CT isn't something that you need cover for overnight, because generally speaking, if you have an emergency, um, if it needs CT, it needs stabilising first. And then in the morning, when the CT team comes in, that's when it can go for CT if it's needed. But usually if if an emergency has come in, no matter what it is, it, it doesn't usually require CT as, as a first line of, of um, investigation. Well, that concludes our roundup of this year's BSABA. Of course, there were many other interesting lectures that we haven't had a chance to mention. I'd just like to thank everyone who's listened, and we hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We'll be back next month for another episode of Focal Point. Until then, please do visit our website and social media platforms for lots more great content to help improve your imaging skills. Until then, it's a goodbye from all of us. Bye, everyone. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everyone.